Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to Revelation. I'm going to read today as we look at tolerance, the church at Thyatira, tolerance. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. I'll read through verse 29 before we continue. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works but to the rest of you in Thyatira who who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. We live in a day and age where tolerance is a virtue. Where tolerance is a virtue. Put up with it, they say. It's better to tolerate it. Just let people live. And it's always a virtue until it becomes something against which they will not tolerate. And then it's a zero tolerance policy. But Jesus tells us something very different. Hold fast, he says, to what I have given you. Tolerance is not the virtue that Jesus is aiming for here, friends. Faithfulness to the gospel is what Jesus is calling for here. Today I want you to see that Jesus is the Son of God who commands his followers to hold fast the gospel by his authority for his reward. And I hope and pray that as we walk away today, Jesus will be more hopeful for us, his reward more glorious to us than anything this world can offer. As we've looked at the cities that the letters are written to by John and from Jesus, we come to the fourth city this morning, Thyatira, and it's not like the first three cities of Asia Minor. 
We begin to make a loop. We travel about 50 miles to the southeast of where we last left off in Pergamum. And Thyatira was the smallest and the least important of all of the seven cities that we'll look at in Revelation. As a matter of fact, one commentator described it this way. The longest of seven letters is written to the church in the smallest and the least important town. Sounds like where I grew up. We had two stop signs. That was it. Otherwise, you could get through. But there was a policeman. And if he was awake when you came through and you were a stranger, you might be in trouble. Otherwise, you were good. The smallest and least important town. That's the most significant introduction to Thyatira that we will have. This area was known for its large number of trade guilds. So its economy was one that really uh, uh, sat on trades and craftsmen. Trades and craftsmen. We see this in the book of Acts when Paul goes into Ephesus and, and he cast out the demon from the young girl who the tradespeople were making so much money off of and people stopped buying their wares and that, that made them so angry. It had an economic impact such that they rioted and threw Paul out of the city. That's the kind of place Thyatira was. It was dependent upon the trades and the crafts, and most of those were built around the pagan deities that we've looked at. Their guilds were like business networks. You might think of unions and that type of thing. And they functioned to strengthen the trade, but you could also say that they functioned to control the economy by those trades and the way that it was functioning the guilds would regularly meet for common meals, right? So you have uh, uh, the network meetings or whatever they were. And, and at these meals, typically they would be serving food that was sacrificed to idols and pagan deities as we've already seen last week in Pergamum. And this created a conflict for many Christians. And there's no good conflict that any Christian uh, uh, has not taken at least the opportunity to consider, if not the factions, to create a crisis over those. And at these meals, they would serve meat sacrifice to idols. After the meal, of course, that would not be the end of the night. They would follow them very often with pagan rituals, which were most likely indulgences into some form of sexual immorality, which was the formal worship practice of those pagan deities. How convenient, right? I want you to think about business trips. I want you to think about business ventures. Where are the deals done? The gentleman club, after hours far too often, the golf course, you might say. This is what we're talking about here. This was the way their lives were fashioned. And as we've already looked at, so many of them came completely out of a secular past, not having any Christian foundation for understanding. And they had given their life to Jesus Christ, become followers of him, but they were struggling because it was having an economic impact upon them. And they were trying to navigate, how do I support my family? How do I make a livelihood? How how do I exist and succeed in this world while God is calling me to another reality? These are not far-fetched concepts or settings from what we deal with today. They're far too familiar, you might say. 
One commentator said it would be nearly impossible for a citizen to participate in the trade and industry without membership in a guild. And immediately the question naturally arose whether a Christian could participate because of the very activities in which they were formed through. You see, guilds controlled the trade and anyone that wanted to do well and to be part of a guild had to participate. So it's not difficult to understand the pressure that people felt. The church at Thyatira was praised for their good works. Jesus says, I know your works. They're works of love. You've excelled and done well at loving other people. You have done well at holding your faith. You you participate in a lot of good deeds, service, where you help other people in the area, and you've demonstrated patient endurance. These were a people who knew how to get dirt under their fingernails, figuratively speaking. They were people who understood how to work hard, but their good works could not dismiss Jesus's charge against them. And that's a lesson that's always a good reminder for us. Why? Because they tolerated a woman who called herself a prophetess and she taught to seduce people into the sexual immorality and idolatry of the cultural practices all around them. Now, let me be clear. The name Jezebel here is not identifying a particular woman per se, but rather it's impressing a label upon a specific woman who was obviously, most commentators believe, it was literally a woman who was a self-proclaimed prophetess in the church that they were tolerating, they were trying to navigate, walking on proverbial eggshells around so they didn't offend her or offend others, who some who liked her and some who just didn't want to deal with the issue but the reason John uses the title Jezebel here is because that label itself would have reminded the people of another Jezebel King Ahab's wife from the Old Testament and the tactics that she used were being repeated in the first century they were tactics that would have been known to them Jezebel was the queen when Elijah battled the 450 prophets of Baal And if you remember the story, it had not rained. And the prophets of Baal built an altar and they did everything they could to light it up. And they basically were sacrificing themselves to no end. While Elijah sat over on the side of the mountain and just waited, watching the horrific scene unfold. And then they said, what about you? And Elijah said, well, I've, I've doused it with water a couple of times. I think I'll go one more time. And he filled the trenches. And then he said, God, show people that you are real. And the Bible says, fire fell from heaven and consumed the water and the altar for the display of the one who is alive and well. This is the woman that they were dealing with. This is the kind of teachings that they were dealing with, that the things that they were engaging and indulging their life in were literally killing them before everyone. And there was no life in them. But God was wanting to move and wanting people to call on his name, 
that his power might be demonstrated among them. So probably the very issues of Thyatira were the same as Pergamum, as Smyrna, as Ephesus, but their guilt was distinctive, and that's how we are introduced to it. The church was tolerating the teachings of this lady and doing nothing about it. It's interesting that that sets in diametric opposition to the church at Ephesus who had built such a strong doctrinal filter that no one could penetrate it, but it had hardened their heart to people. Here we have the fact of, ah, that's not that important and let's just let that one go until the filter had just allowed anything to go and everything was being tolerated. This woman refused to repent. She wouldn't have acknowledged that what she was teaching was sinful, was transgressive against God's holiness and his truth. Even though it says Jesus had given her plenty of time opportunity is what that represents he had been patient with her immoral and idolatrous teaching and so he reminds the church that instead of a bed of sexual immorality he will throw her onto a sick bed instead of those who are following her teaching and indulging with her being indulging in great pleasure he will throw upon them great tribulation in judgment. And for her children, which was more of a reference to her closest followers, not her literal children, they would be struck dead as the obvious end of the immorality and the idolatry in which they indulged. Friends, the Son of God who has flame in his eyes and burnished bronze for feet is the God who will not tolerate false worship of immorality nor idolatry. And far too often, this is not the picture nor the image of Jesus that we conjure up in the church today, but it is the one that John writes of which the Spirit of God reveals against the immorality and the idolatry of this church that they were tolerating. He warns his people that they or not to tolerate this either. Jesus tells the church that is facing such severe pressure, only hold fast to what you have. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. This is not about the possessions that they own, but rather Jesus is appealing to them to the very faith which was given to you, Paul says, to a young Timothy, but through the gospel, the faith that you have taken and that you possess and that possesses you to live in such a way for faithfulness for the name of Christ. You see, not everyone in the church has indulged in immorality and idolatry. And not everyone has experienced what Jesus calls the deeper things of Satan. But for any who had, this was their call to repent. This was their cry to turn from that idolatry, to turn from that immorality, and to turn to the one who was the king, the son of God, in repentance and faith. For to those who hold fast to Jesus... He promises his authority. 
His authority to rule over all the nations in contrast to the way the culture and the way the town itself was being ruled. And he appeals to Psalm chapter or Psalm 2 and verses 8 and 9, and he declares that the one in whom they trust is the eternal king who will conquer. So when Jesus appeals to them, he's identifying himself with the one that Psalm 2 is prophesying about, who is the eternal king of the ages. And he says, I am that king. I will conquer. And in his conquering, they will overcome, be given his authority to rule over all the nations for eternity. That's Jesus' promise for those who repent and hold fast to faith in him. You see, those who hold fast would be eternally rewarded with the morning star. We will see that reference again. The morning star is a reference to Jesus himself. It is the promise of the reward for the one who holds fast. In the military, when some heroic deed is done, there are stars that are given as rewards. These are recognitions for the service and the valor that they have demonstrated in the way that they have served. And what Jesus is saying here is that there's a reward for his followers who hold fast or remain faithful to him. It is the morning star that will be awarded to him. It is the reward of the presence of God for eternity that is given to those who hold fast. Friends, we're introduced to this church here by being reminded that God is not impressed with size. He is not wowed by what we accomplish for him and not even what was recognized in the church, their growth, their, their latter deeds were greater than their first. There was not only good deeds, but there was growth in those good deeds. But Jesus calls people to faithfulness that no matter where you live, no matter what your faith faced with, and, and no matter uh, how your setting is measured by worldly standards, Jesus cares about his people. He cares that they hold fast to the gospel for a faithful witness to his kingdom in the world. Why? Because he's the son of God. He is the one who commands his followers. He knows what he is doing. He knows where he is leading. He knows how that he is empowering his people and he is calling to you and I today to hold fast to the gospel in the world and the culture in which we live. It is not greater than he is. It does not hold more promise than he has given to us and its reward doesn't even compare to his. He has given us his authority. He will give us his reward Contrast the church at Thyatira with the church at Pergamum last week. Pergamum was losing itself to the culture by compromise. Thyatira was giving itself over by the tolerance to false teaching within the church. And that false teaching was seducing people. Seducing them to practice idolatry. Seducing them to practice and indulge in sexual immorality. Friends, what you tolerate will determine where you set your hope. What you tolerate will determine where you set your hope, and it will determine the influence of the hopes of others around you that you have. False teaching seduces the church to stain our good works and to spoil 
our witness. That's why this is so important. That's why Jesus is so serious about it. The gospel commends us to hold fast. It leads Christ followers by Jesus' authority for now to make disciples of all nations for one day to rule over all nations with him. This is what Jesus is calling us to hold fast to today. His authority has been given to us in the Great Commission, has it not? To do what? To make disciples of all nations. It's not just speaking of, hey, we win in some competition, but it is saying we are here now to win people from all nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue that will gather around his throne for all eternity. It is calling to us to capture the vision of the King of kings, the eternal Lord of all the ages, and to call the nations to worship him instead of being seduced to worship the gods of all the nations. Because in the authority we hold today to make disciples of all nations, we will one day be bestowed with the authority by him to rule over all nations with him as king. This is the truth we teach. This is the hope to which Jesus calls us to hold fast. And I ask you today, Christian, are you tolerating false teaching? Or are you holding fast to the gospel where you live? I don't mean are you listening to bad podcast preachers. There's plenty of that out there. And there's, there's plenty of other mediums, media for us to in, in, indulge and, and, and to be filled with. But as in Thyatira, I think the focus is far more personal for us that we have to ask today. Are you entertaining? Are you indulging? Are you setting your hopes on anything that is contrary to the word of God in the most common, normal, daily rhythms of life? This was their job, for goodness sake. This is the way I make my living, God. How am I supposed to hold fast to the ways that are contrary to the very economic patterns of my life and of this world? How will I make it? If I don't just put up with enough to get by, it'll just be this once. I remember when God was, we, we gone past the point of stirring my heart. God, God was at the point of, listen, Lane, I've been stirring your heart for months. I'm, I'm pretty much squeezing every ounce of it now. He was calling me to plant a church, but listen, I was in a good job. I was doing a lot of good things. And I, I remember one morning very vividly driving to the office. It was early and and the sun had just come up, and, and I'm really wrestling within. Lord, you know, I've I got a good job. Our family is established. Things are going well for us. Why do you want to mess with this? I mean, I've got two young kids, and if I just leave this church and go do something else, what, who's going to pay my salary? How am I going to support my family? And I mean, in that instant, in the squeezing of my heart, God also shut my mouth. But he opened my eyes to ask me this. He said, Lane, who do you think is supporting your family now? Who do you think's feeding and clothing your kids? Who, who do you think's taking care of your wife? You really think that's all from you? That's pretty much the last time I ever asked that question of God. 
I won't ever forget that moment. I think the Christians of Thyatira were wrestling in the everyday realities of their life. Every bill that came in a little bigger than the last one. Every demand of life that seemed to surge with every return was pressing upon them. And the question was simply this, God, are you big enough to pay the light bill? Are you big enough to pay the grocery bill? Are you big enough to supply the things that life demands for us. I wanted you to look today, friends, at three gospel contrasts from this passage. Three stark contrasts between Jesus and Jezebel. Between the one who is the Son of God and the one who's purporting the teachings of Satan. And in these contrasts, I want you to hear the call of Jesus to hold fast. And the promise that he gives and the reward that he will provide when you hold fast. The first contrast that we see is what I would call the progression of Jezebel versus Jesus' teaching. Look at the contrast that, that is set forth in what Jezebel teaches versus what Jesus teaches. Jezebel is that generic label for Satan. It refers to any false teacher or any teacher or teaching that opposes the truth of God's word. The teachings of Jezebel were the lies that were seducing the people of God to every form of immorality and idolatry. And I'm telling you, if you read and you do a little bit of study historically about the pagan religions of the first century, your stomach will be turned in ways that you've not yet conceived. It was every gross form imaginable. And the falsehoods that they had tolerated, they were the same as any other cities which made it only more common and only more tolerable for them. But they were deceiving the people to indulge in the false idol worship. If you want success and victory, you need to worship at Athena's temple as we saw last week. If you want fame, you go over to Dionysius' temple and you worship him. If you want health and well-being, you should go to the Asclepion and worship Asclepius as we saw last week. If you want power, go to Zeus. Zeus is the one who gives power. If you want peace and you want security, call out, hail Caesar, hail Caesar, hail Caesar, because that's where peace and security comes from. And let me just ask, who doesn't want these things? Who doesn't want these things? No one. You see, every false idol used sexual immorality and blood sacrifice. Why? Because sex sells and religion makes sense to the sinful mind. That's why. The same reason, the same reason sex sells today and religion confuses today. The greatest deceptions that lead to the darkest indulgence always make the biggest promise to our deepest felt needs. Every false gospel makes this promise. The practices of idol worship followed the progression of self-destruction by darkening and debasing of the mind through sexual immorality and to satisfy the gods by self-mutilation and ultimately self 
destruction. That's what Jezebel's teachings seduced to. Jezebel points to every false idol to satisfy your wants and your needs. And don't think Jezebel is only a teaching of the past, friends. This is as alive and well today as ever. And listen to me, here's the thing about it. Jesus comes from God to call you to himself. By the gospel, he makes you alive with God from those who were dead in sin. Jesus is the one who, in contrast to Jezebel, makes us new by removing the old instead of just mutilating and tearing down the old. He transfers us from the kingdom of his light from those who've been enslaved in the kingdom of darkness, Colossians says. So instead of deeper indulgence in the darkness and becoming more intimate with Satan, Jesus transfers us out of that kingdom and puts us in the kingdom of light, of love where he lives. And by the gospel, he renews us. He doesn't further darken us to deprave us, but he renews us to transform our lives, those who've been deceived. This is the contrast of the progression here. Jesus, the son of God, who came to reveal truth from God, is our only hope and he's our only help. Why? Not by the sacrifice of our life, but by the sacrifice of himself. Jezebel comes and offers this promise, if you will, Jesus comes and gives us his authority and his reward because he has. This is what we are holding fast to. These teachings are nothing alike, though Jezebel makes them sound so incredibly similar. She always seduces to subject her followers to eternal judgment. Jesus authorizes his followers to make disciples of all nations. Now, it's not just about you and I, but it's about God working through us to bring others into the eternal life and the rule of the nations with him. Friends, Jezebel is always a dead-end pleasure. Jesus is always life. Contrast one shows the progression of Jezebel who steals, who kills, and destroys. And Jesus who has come to give life abundant and everlasting. John chapter 10 verse 10. And the progression of this first pattern leads us to consider the contrast of the works and the teachings. Look at the relationship in this second contrast between the pattern of works that are produced by the teachings purported. So we looked at the progression of the teachings. Now we're going to look at the works that these teachings produce and the contrast between them. The trajectory of works in the passage reveals the importance of the teachings that we believe and that which we should not tolerate. What do you mean by works? I mean the word works here. The word works in the text. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works. There are many good works that you have done, church, and you've even demonstrated growth in them. And this is good until these good works get performed absent of faith. When we forsake the gospel as our motivation, even our good works in Jesus' name serve to harm our witness for his name because we do them for the wrong reasons. We do them to earn God's favor instead of enjoying his power. We do them to produce what we can get accolades for instead of pointing people to God for his praise and honor and glory. You see, good works done absent of the gospel and faith in Jesus become nothing more than damnable self-righteous deeds that always end in exhaustion, in frustration, and confusion. Exhaustion, frustration, and confusion. And do you know who that gets pointed at? God. 
That's how you can know that you're doing good things without faith. Because your angst always gets pointed to God. Instead, in the weariness, and when you reach the end of yourself, being able to rest and go, thank you, Lord, for the time I've had and the things I have done. Use them for your honor and glory. Jesus warns us not to forsake the gospel as the defining motivation in all of our good works. That's what he says, I know your works, but some of you have stopped doing them out of faith. And that's occurred because you've tolerated wrong teachings. Next, Jesus addresses her works when he speaks of Jezebel. Look at verse 22. He's talked about what she does. And in referring to the work of Jezebel, he's speaking of the work of Satan here. He says this, that the works that her teachings produce always seduce people. That's a word that means to deceive them. To lead them astray by the very false teachings and the false teachers that are purporting them. You see, once the false teaching gets embraced by the people, then the work begins to be produced. In other words, well, once that false teaching, it's okay. You, you tolerate this. You tolerate that. And before you know it, that sense of toleration has led you to the next step of conflict. And you, you as you did with the last time, you tolerate again until you've begun to move deeper and deeper into the works or the practices of that false teaching. And the reason you do that is because you're giving your mind to them, but you're allowing them to permeate into your heart and all the justifiable reasons that rationalize those things that produce the works of immorality and idolatry. That's what John is teaching to us here. Once a false teaching is embraced, the work gets produced. And when people believe the lie, they're deceived to practice the immorality, deceived to practice the idolatry. They don't know they're being deceived. They've already become convinced that it's acceptable. It's convinced that it's okay because they've tolerated it. The teaching can start with any topic, but it always leads away from the counsel of God's truth. It always leads away from the counsel of God's truth. And what Jesus says of her works is that you must repent of her works. Wait a minute. Do we repent of other people's sins? No, that's not what he's saying here. But to repent means we see and we acknowledge. So if you have participated, we'll get to that in a moment in the next uh, uh, word that emerges in works. But even if you've not indulged and, and participated, you still must repent because the longer that you entertain her works, the more you will entertain the teaching and the more you entertain the teaching, you will embrace it to be fully immersed. You must repent and turn away from her works. You must acknowledge that what she teaches and what she is doing is wrong. It's counter to the truth of God's word so that you do not entertain it to embrace it. That's what Jesus is saying. You must repent of her works. Avoid the work. Avoid participating in the activity. Denounce it and oppose the teaching that produces it. So whether one has yet to participate or not, repent means to identify the work and the teaching that produces it as both false and sinful. After telling what will happen to all those who indulge that we've already overviewed, 
He says that each person, in verse 23 is where it becomes personal. Because each person will be judged according to your works. Your works. It just got personal there. Jesus warns his church that the one who searches mind and heart, he, he is the one that determines by the righteousness of his truth and the truth of his word what is right, what is good. And by the gospel, he supplies the power and the strength to produce those true good works. I know your works, he says, but you've not held fast to the gospel. You've allowed worldly motivations to overtake and to subtly seep in because you've tolerated her works which you must repent of and turn away from before they become your works. And if they have, you confess them to God as you repent from them. And why? Well, finally, Jesus says in verse 26, using the word works for the fourth time in the passage, he says that the one who holds fast, who conquers, is the one who keeps his works. His works. You see where repentance leads you, friends? You look at the false teaching. You turn away from it. No matter how deeply you've indulged, there is grace for those who are as deep and sitting next to the deep things of Satan as possible from those who are just simply giving uh, uh, shallow consideration to. Jesus calls all of them to repent, even, even the woman herself, and to turn and make their works his works. This is the contrast that his word is revealing to us. You see, the work of Jesus now that we're to keep is the work that we're authorized for in the Great Commission. To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And, and that is that identification with Christ, the becoming a Christian, teaching them to observe all these things. Why? Because in the teaching of the truth of God's work, the works of Jesus naturally flow out of those things. His words reveal the importance of the true and right teachings and denouncing false teachers that produce his work because only by sharing the gospel can we make disciples. You see, the second contrast highlights the importance of us to guard our mind and to guard our hearts by the gospel. Friends, a teaching that produces false work can be any information, any lesson, any tenet that gets set forth, any principle that invites your hope, that answers a question that you have, that solves a problem you're faced with, that introduces something new that you're tantalized by, or whatever the case may be. It may begin with a cliche, a mantra, or a meme, but in whatever form, it always invites your hope. You see, the problem is this. Jezebel always teaches in such a way so that you don't see the deception. That's the issue of deception. But you get seduced because you want and desire what it offers. Jezebel teaches to seduce towards Satan. Jesus teaches for faith that brings life, a reward of eternity with him. The Christian discerns every teaching by the truth of God's word and the light that it brings to align with the gospel. Consider the progression of the teaching you're looking at. Does it point you to Jesus Christ or to some other hope? And then discern the work that it produces. Does it facilitate or hinder the work of Jesus in you? 
This is the way you see the progression of the teaching and where it leads. Where a teaching does not point you to God's word nor strengthen the work of Jesus in you, you should denounce it and repent of that teaching. Christians never tolerate teaching that is counter to, that deters from, distracts from, or opposes God's word because it always produces Satan's work. And this is important for this reason. Because the teaching you hold fast to forms the belief that you or that hold you to fuel the work of your labors that display the witness of your life. I'm going to repeat that. The teaching you hold to forms the beliefs that hold you to fuel the work of your labors and that ultimately display the witness of your life. Where you tolerate teachings that disagree with or dispute God's word, that in any way diminish or in any measure dilutes God's word, or anything that deters or distracts from obeying God, they will only serve to seduce you into Satan's work. That's why we live in a world where so many are turning away. They're deconstructing. They're, They're walking away from the faith. Why? Because they're tolerating things that are teachings that cannot produce the things of God in their life. False teachings do not have to be inherently or outwardly evil to deceive. Very few of them present themselves in this way. But if the activity of that teaching entangles you to deter you from obeying God's word, then it is ultimately a false teaching, no matter how good it seems at its inception. False teaching often engages in the activity of its idea to indulge the enjoyment and so entangle in its deception before it divulges the tenets and what it truly produces. Seduced versus authorized. And Jesus reveals his whole truth from the beginning. He's not hiding anything, friends. He puts it out there. The work of Jesus is produced when the teaching of Jesus is fully embraced by us. Listen, Jesus gives us the power to obey his every command. To walk in the light of his truth because he has satisfied God's righteous demand for us. And therefore we can invite others to join us in this life with God. The more of your life you give fully to Jesus, the more of Jesus' authority you will have to live your life every day. The third contrast is simple. That promised reward. The promised reward of Satan's work is not what Jezebel says. You see, Jesus will judge false teachers and teachings and he will judge all who follow them to condemn them to the reality of their own false promise. A sickbed, great tribulation, and death. Teaching of Jezebel, listen for this one, is always inclusive of a secret sauce. There's some secret knowledge, some secret indulgence, some ultimate experience that gets promised to a deeper and more full indulgence. Jesus says these are the deep things of Satan. And those who indulge to practice will receive the same reward as Satan. Eternal punishment and damnation. But those who hold fast to the gospel, Jesus says, I will give you my authority. You will rule the nations with the morning star. 
Jesus' authority is now bestowed on us to make disciples of all nations. And one day we'll become his authority to rule all nations with him. I ask you this morning, friend, are you tolerating the teachings of Jezebel? Or are you holding fast to the truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I implore you to hold fast to Jesus. Let's pray.